Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the Assistant Minister of Kenmore Prezi. Uh, and I have the wonderful privilege of taking us through a topical sermon, which is not something we do very often. It's not something I've done very often. Uh, a topical sermon covering the idea of what church is uh, or who we are as a church. And we're going to be using Ephesians 2 as the launching pad for that, uh, as a way of diving in uh, and looking bigger picture at what the church is and why this really matters for us here in 2023 in Kenmore Presbyterian Church. So before I begin, how about I pray, uh, then we'll dive into the Word and have a look at what God says to us. Father God, I pray in your mercy uh, that you would use the words of a mere man like myself to speak your truth. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be guided by your word through your spirit to understand more about what it means to be your church. Amen. Well, the word church, uh, it is a bit of a strange one. Uh, there are many who struggle to give a good, solid definition for it. If you were to walk up to anyone, churched or unchurched, and said, what is the church, you'd probably get many different responses. Uh, some hear the word church, and what comes to mind is buildings that are kind of organised in a certain way. Maybe you have pews, uh, stained glass windows, uh, maybe like we see here, a cross sitting at the front. Some people would picture a church that's way more ornamental, filled with relics and objects that either sit there or are used in ceremonial processions and things like that. Uh, for others, the word church conjures images of kind of denominational differences. So things like to be the church is to be Presbyterian or to be Anglican or, or Baptist and so on. For others, it might conjure images of clergy that wear those cardboard dog collars. Uh, like the ones you see on TV, uh, they're very, very easily identifiable and they have titles like Reverend, which I expect all of you to refer to me as from this day forth. <laughs> they speak with these and, and thous and for some of them they even use the Queen's English in a pious and high voice. Maybe that's what we think of when we think of the church. For others, maybe the news has influenced your thinking of what the church is. You might see it as an institution of deep distrust because of the abuse that it has been a part of. Maybe you don't even need the news to know this. Maybe you've experienced harm at the hands of what we would call the church. Um, sadly, I personally know uh, more than a couple of people who this is the case for. They have a deep distrust of the church and particularly the leadership within the church, because of the way abuse or harm has been handled. And sadly, in a lot of these instances that I know of, what happens is they recluse from the church and go back into a highly individual, highly personal experience of God outside of any connection with God's people whatsoever, in what I, from the front, often call the Lone Ranger Christian. Um, sadly, I know of people who haven't stepped foot inside a church building for months or even years because of this stuff. And so the church, for them, really, it, it's just a place of hypocrisy and a place of harm. For others, the church might be the opposite of this. It might be a harmless place, but not in, in the good sense, in kind of a bad sense. It's so harmless that it doesn't affect culture, it doesn't really affect the lives of its believers, and so society has said, let's shed ourselves off this and push the church to one side. And so the church, in a bid to remain relevant, then moves with society, moves with the culture around it. 
or if the church isn't harmless in that way. It's harmless in the sense that even today, many of us might consider it dry or, or dull, or maybe even consider it just that weekly duty that you have to endure, and then once it's all over, you can get on with the business that really matters in life. But the question is, is this what the church is? Is this what we are at Kenmore Presbyterian Church? And if not, then the question is, well, what are we? What exactly is the church? And more poignantly, why should this matter to each of you sitting here this evening? Uh, This is something you've pondered. If you have questioned, well, what is the church? Why do we meet? What are we actually doing here? Then you've come at a good week because these are some of the questions we're going to look at answering this week uh, and next as well as we launch into another year here at KPC. Uh, These are the questions that arguably I think we need to have answered if we're to understand the sheer importance of meeting together regularly. But even more than this, the importance of the work and mission of God himself all throughout history. In fact, when it comes to this topic of uh, the church, kind of in inverted commas, uh, tonight we'll be taking it a little bit easier in one sense because we're going to take a step back and look at the church at its very essence, right? When, When we zoom out to look at why we do these things that we do every week, week in, week out. What is the church? So that being said, the first thing I think we need to grasp, uh, which is in your outlines, is that the church isn't a human invention. Right? So the church, it's not a club of individuals who share these, these same sort of similarities. You know, people didn't go, hey, you know, we love Jesus and hey, we love the Bible, why don't we form a society of people that love Jesus and love the Bible and, you know, let's call it the church, you know, and then away you go. No, it doesn't exist because a group of people decided to make it exist. Uh, It doesn't exist in the same way that that like a sailing club or a bowling club or a knitting club, they do exist, uh, exists because people have common interests. In fact, the church doesn't have its beginnings in any of us, ultimately, Rather, the church, according to the Bible, and particularly as we're looking at Ephesians 2 here, it is a divine institution which has its origins in the work of God. In other words, the church exists not because of our voluntary association with it, as some might think it does, but rather it exists because God is busily at work calling out a people for himself. It's kind of the difference between uh, a Coles shopping centre experience where They're kind of calmly packing your items for you. The work is kind of being done. You're just kind of there and everything happens in front of you. Or the frantic rush of going to Aldi, buying like two weeks' worth of meals and then having them going beep, 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 and you're there going, ah, I've got to do all the work myself, let's pack it in. Kind of the world record scanning speeds that you see there is you're stuck bagging everything by yourself, doing all the work yourself. Now, this is an awful illustration. It's probably the most imperfect illustration I could think of. But the point is that the church isn't about what we're doing and trying really hard to get done. It's about what God has done for us. It's not your effort or energy that includes you in God's church. It is entirely the work of God in bringing you in. Now, God isn't any stranger in working in this way. Uh, If you know the story of the Old Testament, we actually looked at this at youth camp. We looked at the kingdom of God from Genesis uh, all the way up to Jesus. And if you know the Old Testament, you'd know that God is actually in the business of gathering a people to himself, drawing a people to be his own. Uh, In the Old Testament, 
Uh, Specifically, he chose the nation of Israel to be his people, and he gave them all the rules and all the regulations, and and he showed them how they can live in his presence with him as their God, and and how they can live even with one another, kind of in a church-like state. But if we think back even further, like even before Israel was a nation, we see something really peculiar uh, in the famous Genesis chapter 12, as before God even calls Israel, he talks to Abraham and gives him a promise. He promises that through Abraham, he's going to bless all the nations, every nation, not just Israel, but every nation. And so as the Bible story unfolds, this is something we're supposed to keep pocketed in the back of our minds. Uh, as even after Israel becomes the focus of so much attention, we know that there's, there's something more. God has promised something more. Where is this going to happen? And as time rolls on, God's plan slowly unfolds. This is one of the beauties of reading the whole Bible because you see all of this. Until we get to the day that Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus, he does something really amazing, almost scandalous. He begins to gather a new people, a new Israel to himself. And by doing this, he shakes up what everyone had originally thought and knew about how to worship him and about how to be one of his people. In a nutshell, the arrival of Jesus, it ultimately meant that a lot of the Old Testament sacrifices and the the, the system they had going was done away with, along with, with temple worship even. Both of these were replaced by Jesus himself as the sacrifice, the sacrifice for sin and a whole bunch of other things. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus is also now the place where you go to meet God. He is the temple. He's the place you go to worship God. When you worship Jesus, you're worshipping God himself. In essence, he became, in this new covenant, the one-stop shop for all your heavenly needs. I don't know why I'm going on like shopping illustrations. I must have just been on my mind as I was writing this. But what this does mean is that to be his chosen people then was no longer about being a biological descendant of Abraham. You didn't have to come from the household of Abraham or Israel. Instead, you were one of God's family members by faith. And last year, uh, when we went through Romans, uh, Steve gave a really good talk in chapter 4 that actually covers this whole topic of the fact that we're saved now by faith, which goes all the way back to Abraham. So the church, the New Testament church, at its very core, it isn't a human invention. It's a divine institution where through Jesus, God is calling out a people to himself. Now, the reason we had Ephesians 2 read for us this evening is because this is where we see Paul unpacking a lot of the logic of this, uh, I think probably in one of the most clear parts of the whole New Testament. So starting at verse 11, uh, Paul, he explains how the full number of God's people ultimately came to be. He says in verse 11, Therefore... Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by hands. That's Paul's little jab at the circumcised, the the Jewish people. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise, which logically means you were without hope, you were without God in the world. Basically, Paul's saying that if you weren't biological Israel, then you were out. You were stuffed. You weren't one of God's people. 
But then just as it dawns on all of us who aren't descended biologically from Israel, just as it dawns on us that we have no hope, Paul writes these amazing words. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that is, far from God, have been brought near. How have we been brought near? By the blood of Christ. In verse 15, he kind of sums it up in this way. He says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is the origins of the church that we know today. It's a community of believers, a community that God gathers together, whose defining marker is the blood of Christ, which wipes away their sin. It's not a bunch of like-minded people who think, oh, Jesus is pretty cool, you know, maybe I'll do that. And so they come and they hear a bunch of interesting stuff about Jesus and kind of come back again because it keeps getting more interesting or maybe more boring, who knows. No, God's church, it consists of those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. This is what it means to be part of the new humanity. But if this is the case, right, if this, if this is our working definition of the church, if this is the definition we're going to use for this week's talk, then you probably realise that Ephesians 2, it's not talking about buildings, it's not talking about clergy, dog collars or rituals or anything like that. It's not even talking about an attachment to a specific denomination. Right? We're not Christian because we're Presbyterian. He's not talking here about how you can become a member of Kenmore Presbyterian Church. Because ultimately, it's all about Jesus. And if this is the case, then it addresses two major misunderstandings of the local church, which I think we need to hear and are worth looking at today, uh, which still exist in many forms. So on the one hand, the first misunderstanding of the church, well, some will say that, that the people leading the church are the final authority on all things related to salvation and godliness. And this means that, that your attendance and your active participation at the whims of what these people say, this is where you find grace. Whereas on the other hand, if we go kind of all the way to the other extreme, some would argue, and I've seen this a lot, I mentioned it right at the beginning of the talk, that a relationship with God is so personal that the gathering of his people is really just an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience because the church is just full of hypocrites and sinners gathering together. I mean, they're so off the other end that they create all these ridiculous denominations, splitting hairs over doctrines like baptism and and predestination and, and when Jesus is returning and all of that stuff, all those annoying little things, when really the church should just get on with the business of loving Jesus. In essence, this is the type of people who prefer to be a Christian in the privacy of their own home with a Bible in their hands, away from all of that gathering church nonsense. Now, those are extremes. Not everyone fits into those, but that's where the pendulum swings one way or the other. Either swings entirely kind of to the human authority aspect or entirely to the God authority aspect where you just disregard any human gathering altogether. And so if this has been your experience, I want to share my own sympathies that I kind of feel that way sometimes as well. But the really good thing is that God's church 
is not about either of those things. It's, it's about him and the gathering of his people. Uh, God's church doesn't ever have human leaders as the final authority, nor does it ever consider it healthy or right for people to separate themselves completely from one another either. Now, the church in Ephesians 2, it's all about God gathering a people to himself as the authority and to one another in fellowship by the blood of Jesus. In other words, your attendance and your active participation isn't solely what it means to belong to the church. There's a missing ingredient there, but nor is your supreme godliness isolated from everybody else. So I say this relating to it as well, apologies to all the introverts out there, but when you're saved, you're called into a new community of believers. Let me show you from Ephesians 2. Um, If we have a look, I wonder if I'll pop it up on the screen there. I've highlighted all the plurals that Paul has in this passage. He says this in verse 19, Consequently, that is, as a result of Christ's blood drawing you near, right? Consequently, you're no longer foreigners, that's plural, and strangers, plural, but, but you're now fellow citizens. It's the same thing with God's people, plural, and also members of his household. It's bang, 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 plural after plural after plural, as Paul drives home the point that being a Christian is not something that you ever do alone because you're now part of something far, far bigger than yourself. In fact, Paul finishes verse 22 saying, and in him, you, uh, we don't quite get this in English, but the you here is a plural you. So if you consider like the American y'all, like that's kind of what he's saying here. In him, you all, (laughs) y'all, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, God is bringing you together with his people, to become a place where he dwells by his spirit. Hence, the gathering and the unity of God's people absolutely matters to him. It's not an optional extra to come along to church. It's actually part of the package deal. Now, so far, I've talked about what church isn't. Uh, Now it's worth talking about, well, what church is. Uh, If we're all one body, I guess the question is, well, how come do we have... How come we have multiple denominations and multiple churches across Brisbane and even Kenmore, if we think more locally? Uh, the The unity of the universal church is something that's kind of a bit of a mystery, but essentially when we gather together in our local congregations, we're playing out this unity, this global unity, on a small scale. It's a small scale representative of this larger one family of God. And this is why if you do read uh, particularly a lot of Paul's letters, you'll see that he often refers to the church uh, in multiple places as both. Both one, the universal singular body across all space and time, that is every believer in every part of history and every place. But he also refers to the church as the local congregation, particularly when he's addressing them. And we see this time and time again. Which means in a nutshell, the church is both one, which we agree with our creeds, but it's also many. The body of Christ is one, but it's represented across many smaller congregations. And what this means is that if you're the type uh, who in the back of your mind do consider church to be an inconvenience or this optional extra in the week, or maybe it's just the obligatory thing you have to do before you can finally chat with your friends and get on with the business of life that really matters to you, then be warned. 
because God loves his church. And this attitude not only undermines the importance that he himself places on the local church, but dare I say it's also dangerous for your spiritual health as well. So that's the first thing I want to bring to your attention uh, as we kind of draw this plane to a close, we land it. The church exists as one body, but is represented in many local churches all around the world. The second thing that's worth noting is that despite the importance God places on the local church, it really is important to say that it's not going to be a perfect experience. I know this is hard to believe here at Kenmore Presbyterian, but it's true, we're not perfect. In fact, any human contribution to the church will never be perfect. Uh, Even with a freshly minted reverend, who apparently I've got 24 hours in which I can say anything and it's nothing. I'm only kidding. Even with that title, it, it essentially means nothing about what I'm saying up the front here. You can still critique it and think about it and go, actually, I think I disagree with you on that. Now, I don't want to underplay the significance of the titles of of reverend and so on or the significance of the ordination that happened earlier today. But in comparison with the authority of Jesus over his church, when you factor that in, it essentially does mean very little. Put simply, shock horror, I'm a broken sinner and I need Christ just as much as anybody What I say from the front here can and, dare I say, will be wrong from time to time. But this is a good reminder that no human authority has the last say when it comes to God's church. Ultimate authority lies only with Jesus through the Word of God as we read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit enables us to understand it. Now, We've taken a really big picture of what the church is. This may leave a lot of questions in your mind. Thankfully, next week, we are going to touch on some of the more practical elements, uh, things about why we sing, why we preach, uh, do the sacraments, and um, even why we give generously. It's all going to be lumped into the one. But as for now, I want to take us a step back uh, to simply consider this, what we call universal or the lowercase c Catholic church, right? the universal church in Ephesians 2. And I think when we consider the importance God plays on the local church and on the church being one body, where we all dwell together by the one spirit in Ephesians 2, the church is made up of all the people who have ever been saved by the blood of Jesus. If that is our working definition of the church, then there's one very, very important question which I think we need to press onto our hearts. And that is, do I want to be part of this church? Am I part of this church? We're going to be having dinner after the service, and I think these are some good questions to think about as we go over that. Uh, But as we finish up, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll finish off the service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that... Although we were so far off, without Christ, excluded from heavenly citizenship, without hope in the world, that in your love and providence you made a way for us to be included in Christ through his blood. We thank you for the community that this brings us into. Father, this year I pray as we consider the value you place on your holy church, that we would also consider your church 
to be a privilege to be a part of, to love and serve and care and grow as your people. Help us to appreciate the small taste we get of the heavenly gathering here at our local church all the more this year. And Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.